Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 160. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Lee's Comics. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by popoptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. You remember them from your childhood. Half for the Friendly Ghost, Richie Ridge, Hot Stuff, Baby Huey, Sad Sack and Will Audrey. You read them in comic books and saw them on television and in the movies. Now you can read about how they and other Harvey comic characters were created in two great books from Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions, The Best of Harveyville Fun Times and The Harvey Comic Companion. Both are available from Amazon. The Companion is also available from Fair Manor Media. They are available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook version. Order your copies today. Long title, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Song One by One, by Michael Aventrella and Mark Arnold. A book that examines each song, gives lots of details about each song, and our own personal opinions. You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch. Christmas, Christmas time is here, and Alvin and the Chipmunks are here again. In 1958, a down songwriter with an unlikely name of Ross Bagdasarian plunged the last of his family savings on a multi-speed tape recorded and created The Witch Doctor and Alvin and the Chipmunks. This changed the fortune for his family, his record label, and animated cartoon studio. Alvin! The story of Ross Bagdasarian, Liberty Records, Format Film, and The Alvin Show by Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions is available from Amazon and Fair Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copy today. You can now order my latest book, The TTV Scrapbook, from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Bear Manor Media. If you'd like signed copies of this or any of my books, please email me at funideas.mark at gmail.com for further information on how to order directly from me via PayPal. I now have three super articles to write for Back Issue, Super Richie, Super Dagwood, and Super Fan. My Pac-Man book is the next to be coming out, and I'm still working on my Mad and Turtles books. 
Warren Kremer is due out eventually, as is my next Disney book. On today's show, we have someone who worked for Lucille Ball, performed warm-ups for different strokes and silver spoons, has his own video production company called Shokus, hosts Stu's show, and is the star of an upcoming documentary of the same name. Here he is, Stu Showstack. Hi, this is Mark Arnold with another Fun Ideas podcast. And today on the show, I have a very special guest who's had me on his show four different times. His show is called Stu's Show. And here he is, Stu Showstack. How are you, sir? Uh, I can't believe I'm actually on your show after all these years. I'm fine. How are you? Good. Is it a shock that I have a show? But, it is. Uh, I did have a broadcasting degree. You may not know that. So I do have, you I know, it's never just, have known. Yeah, but I, I'm a little more lackadaisical than you on, on how I do things, but I get things done. Anyway, <laughs> enough about that. Uh, this show is actually a focus on you. And uh, part of the reason I had you on here, but then you're going to come back probably later uh, when the filmmaker is with us is that there's a new film called Stu's Show, ironically, clever title, and about all the history behind you. And from what I can tell, you know, after Janine, your wife, had an aneurysm, you know, all the support that all the various celebrities you had on the show helped you out. And then, of course, the dark side of the whole <laughs> documentary about the you whole know, thing is the, the, the wonderful <laughs> medical system we have around here yeah. so i don't know how much yeah. you want to give away ahead of time but, i don't know, want to give too much yeah. away but let me just but, say that once you figure out and i don't want to go into this too much now because when right. cj the filmmaker is on with you then we can really get hit the nuts and bolts and we have yeah. to kind of be careful right now because i can't even give the, uh, the i don't know when this is going to air but right now the pr company and the distributor for the film have the hold on all of this and they have to be the ones to make the official announcement. But the main thing I wanted to stress is once you figure out how to work with the medical industry, you will find that there are some very cooperative, very dedicated, very good people. But until you discover how to (laughs) deal with that, it's hell. It it can be hell. It can be a blessing Mm -hmm. and it it can be hell. And mm-hmm. you will see both of those elements intertwined in the documentary. Very good. And okay. that, that's all I'm going to say right that's now. That's fine. I won't uh, go into any more detail. Because, I'm not like, the nice, uh, yeah. charming, lovable person that you've all come to know over the past <laughs> 16 years. If you've been listening and watching my television show and prior to that, my audio show. Okay. <laughs> there is a dark side to this guy, too. <laughs> but we're actually going to go further back because i always uh, ask people to start oh. off yeah uh you know just like tell me a little bit about yourself and one thing i found out about you because i actually read your wikipedia page i didn't know you were born in san francisco so i didn't know i, I had a wikipedia page you do um, <laughs> so uh, how did you end in up san francisco yeah yes. and <laughs> how did you end up being how did like, i end up being born well my parents got together <laughs> nine months prior <laughs> No, no, no. Uh, How how, how did you end up in Hollywood? How did I end up in Hollywood? Well, I ended up in L.A. because when I was four years old, my father 
uh, took a, uh, a, a better job. He was assistant deputy district attorney in Santa Rosa hmm. uh, from about a year after I was born in San Francisco until about 1960. And uh, his aunt, my great aunt, was the head of a law firm uh, in the Los Angeles area. Customs law, which is probably the most boring aspect of law. That's why. That's why you only see Judge Judy and 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 People's Court and shows like that because if they showed the kind of law that my my aunt and my dad practiced, not only would the show be off the air, but the channel would be taken off the air. Uh, but anyway, he was offered a full time uh, 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 a co co-head of the firm position with my aunt, uh, my, my great aunt, his aunt. And mm -hmm. so we, we moved to the LA area in 1960 when I was four years old. And mm -hmm. that's how I got into LA. Okay. Because obviously I knew your dad was a lawyer. And, uh, you did? Yes. I think you, you mentioned You've done much show. too much research. Uh, <laughs> no, I think you have mentioned it at least privately. I don't know if you said it on Stu's show before. I but, may have said it a yeah. couple of times on this Yeah, show. but, uh, you know, I don't even know if he still practices. I know he's still around, you know, because he, he still practices. About... He lives oh, in okay. Tucson, Arizona now, and he still has a handful of clients. He's going to be 91 in July. He oh, still wow. drives. He still plays golf. He still practices law, and he still can't get the hang of Windows 11. <laughs> Every single day. Anyway. So, so did you get interested in all the stuff that you do in media and television, everything, because you did not want to become a lawyer? Or how did that come about? It's funny that you say that way, because when I turned 15, I wanted to have a car when I was 16. And my dad said, the only way you're going to get a car is if you go to work. And since there's no demand for whatever skills you're lacking in right now, you're going to come and work for me. And mm. the minimum wage at the time was $2 an hour. And, and, and so that was the longest couple of summers I ever had, but I did earn enough working for him to buy my first car, a 1970 Carmen Ghia, wow. which, which for $1,100, which if I had kept today would be worth like $50,000. I think that's why I said, wow. I'm like, because I'm thinking of it now. Be, be that as it may, those two years convinced me there was no way in hell I was going to become a lawyer. No way. Uh, it was the most boring, uh, sit on your ass type of work, filing, typing, you know, secretarial. It was horrible. And I had I had and he was hoping I would follow in his footsteps. And if I'd gone into any kind of law, it would have been copyright law. No, I think when it gets right down to it, from the time I was about seven or eight years old, I had always been fascinated with television. Mm -hmm. I remember my my first grade teacher's husband worked at the local PBS station in Los Angeles, which was Channel 28 at the time. It mm. wasn't called PBS then. This is how old I am. It was called NET, National Educational Television. <laughs> and he came to the class one day and I was six, seven, eight years old. I forgot. Maybe it was maybe it was second or third grade. Um uh, and and he, he talked to us about working at the TV station and he brought a 16 millimeter film with him about being behind the scenes at television. And although it wasn't Channel 28, it was about KTLA Channel 5 in mm. Los Angeles. And that film you can watch on YouTube. It's called Television Serves Its Community. And after 50 some odd years of seeing it only in school on an old clunky Bell and Howell projector, I actually saw it on YouTube and went, my God, this is the film that convinced me that my work was going to be in television. 
And wow. it's a great film because they they go from Monday through Friday. They show how a show gets on the air with rehearsals and working from the control room and writing up cue cards and doing the commercials. And I just at that young age, I just decided that's for me. That's what I want to do. Wow. So um, there was never any other aspirations, say, uh, uh, like movies as opposed to television or radio or anything else? Or did you not have such a no, no, no. I, I I, had a smattering. Of course, we went to the movies. I saw Mary Poppins the week it came out. That's how old I am. Uh, I remind Dick Van Dyke of that all the time, too. And he's really appreciative of that fact. Um, but no, I, I was interested in radio. I was in, interested in any kind of media I could get my hands on in sixth grade. Now, this was four or five years after first grade, five years after, if my math mm -hmm. is correct. Yeah. Sixth grade, we had a carnival at the elementary school and a guy brought a reel to reel helical scan Sony videotape recorder and set up a booth. Oh. See yourself on TV. <laughs> and oh, my God, I forget the merry-go-round, for, forget the carnival. <laughs> I, I parked myself in front of that booth the whole time just watching him doing interviews with kids. He had this big old, huge old metal microphone interviewing the kids. And then he'd shut off the machine with this, you know, clamp that, that was the size of a handbrake in a car. And mm. then he'd rewind the tape and play it back. And it oh, was geez. in color on wow. a, you know, a 60, 1967 color TV. And I would, and then he saw how fascinated I was. He let me do one of the interviews with another one of the kids. Wow. So I not only got to, <laughs> got to see, that could have been my first warm up, you know, come to there think of it. <laughs> Our um, first <laughs> show. But, but it was, it was anything that had to do with media. And I was a ham from the time I was a kid, a little kid, I was a class clown. So anything for attention, anything that would ingratiate me, my, myself in front of an audience, mm -hmm. I, I relished. So mm -hmm. if it didn't matter if it was radio, didn't matter if it was movies, television was my first love. Um, <laughs> anything to get me in front of a microphone, I was all for back then. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Um, now, was your dad or your, I don't even know much about your mom. You could tell me a little bit about her if she worked or anything like that too. But uh, uh, both of them, were they supportive of this? Or were they, no. oh, you'll never make any money at this, be a it, lawyer it was, or whatever. It, it, my, yeah. my, my dad wanted me to be a lawyer. He pushed that. They, they weren't rejective of me. My grandfather was, my mom's father. <laughs> uh, he was a self-made man and, mm. and, and he invested in real estate and he owned a pawn shop and he, when he left us, we didn't realize how much money he had until he left us. But he was the old school guy who, you know, if you weren't Jack Benny or Bob Hope or Eddie Cantor or one of the biggies, you weren't going to make a living in that industry. And so he did his best to discourage me. Mm. Obviously, it didn't work. Um, did he want uh, you to be a lawyer, too, or he, just anything else? No, he <laughs> when I told him I was going into television, um, and I was going to major in that in college, he did his best to discourage me to the point where he said, if I followed in my father's footsteps and became a lawyer, he would not only put me through college, but he would pay for a swanky apartment in Westwood because I started out at UCLA, had to leave there when I wasn't uh, accepted into the TV department there. Having worked in the TV industry for at least two years at that point. Wow. They huh. were only they were on a minority kick back then. This is when all the civil rights stuff started. This was early 70s, mid 70s, the 76. I did my my um, 
lower class, not lower class. What what do you call the the, the first two years of college? I, I'm sorry, I'm old. I forgot the, the, what it's the electives, basically. The, not the, the electives. General education. General the, education. There you go. General. I, I'm 65, folks. <laughs> forgive okay. me. Um, <laughs> Did my general ad, and when I went to apply for the television department, with with recommendation letters from some of the producers at the Norman Lear sitcoms, with from my boss who who at the studio, they still rejected me. They said, you know, we have to fulfill a quota of minorities. Wow. And I said, well, I'm Jewish, and they said, get the hell out of here. <laughs> so, so I left UCLA, you know, which is this level here and went to Cal State Northridge because I could get into the TV department there and get a degree in directing television. But, you know, you're going from a, a state university to a state college, right? So right. there was a bit of a drop as far as prestige is concerned. I didn't care. I didn't need the college because I was already working in the industry. I was an entry level giving away tickets to television shows, but I had my foot in the door. Um, I, I went to college basically so I could learn how to direct because I could watch all of these great directors do their thing for, you know, Maud and all in the family, but I could never hands on because it was unionized and you can look, but don't touch type of thing mm. in school, in the proper school, you you could hands on and you do right. your own productions and things like that. So I got into Cal State Northridge. Had I not gotten into Cal State Northridge, I would not have met Lucille Ball, who ended okay. up teaching a class there for 13 weeks, just like a sitcom, 13 week class at night, Monday night. <laughs> and of course, I was her star pupil because I knew everything about her. And I, I had learned a lot about the industry before I even took the class from from my own observations and, and working in the business. And, and had I not met Lucille Ball, I would not have become her film archivist after her uh, publicity director passed away in 1981. And so there was that aspect of my career that never would have happened had I not left UCLA and gone to Cal State Northridge. So there's an example of, yeah, I went to college, but it, it was just a matter of timing. It wasn't. A, and yes, I'm grateful for the knowledge that I achieved there and what I learned. But again, in show businesses, timing is everything. Right. You got to be at the right place at the right time. And it does help if you're motivated, you're passionate, and you do have a modicum of talent that mm -hmm. would get you to where you want to be. Okay. I'm still looking for that talent. <laughs> now, uh, you said something that I'm curious about now. So you were already working for Metro Media, you said. So prior to going to any college or just it? at yeah, the same time yeah okay. i i so you're in high school then at that point yeah oh, okay. yeah yeah I'm, and I'm, so how did I'm that how did that come flashbacks, about flashbacks mark um, <laughs> when i when i got that carmen Gia, right. i started to go to te television tapings okay? Okay. okay the tickets were free and yeah. they needed people to fill the shows now it was impossible to get tickets for all in the family it was impossible to get tickets for prices right it was impossible to get tickets for the mary tyler moore show your basic top 10 shows you couldn't get into, hmm. okay? There's a waiting list because right. they were so popular. Aha, but concentration with Jack Narr? <laughs> it's not Bob, a bad show, Bob but Bob yeah. Not... other show, Truth or Consequences, yeah. those shot at Metro Media before Norman Lear moved to uh... his shows from CBS over there. Mm -hmm. You didn't even need a ticket sometimes. You could just go in there <laughs> and believe me, Johnny Olson and Johnny Gilbert and all these warm-up guys we're so happy to see somebody in there without blue hair <laughs> because the audiences in the afternoon at all of those shows 
were older than me and I'm mm. 65. So the great thing about that is I could hop in my car after school, drive to Hollywood, park my car, go in and watch Bob Barker do his brilliance on truth or consequences. Mm -hmm. And because I was there so much, they all got to know me. Even Barker got to know me well mm. enough. So, you know, he called me his number one fan when I was sitting in the audience. I was the only <laughs> one that gave him a standing ovation in those days. He, he didn't achieve the success and the, the um, godliness, I guess, of Price is Right at that point. Price is Right was still a half hour show back then. Right. right. I uh, and that. then on concentration, Johnny Olson did the warm ups there. Hmm. And I just I marveled at him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When he got to know me really well, he just spilled everything to me before the show. <laughs> there were only two types of audiences that would go to those shows at 2.30 in the afternoon. The blue hairs or little, little kids who went there as a um, as a field trip. So the kids could see how to <laughs> because those shows were easy to get into. They needed bodies because nobody wanted to. Who would want to go to see the, the concentration when you could go to the Tonight Show or Price is Right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So Johnny Olson and I got to know each other real well. Johnny was a great guy. You want to talk about an old, old school show business guy. Mm -hmm. He told all kinds of stories to me about working with Jackie Gleason and on What's My Line and all of these shows that he did in the heyday of television. And mm -hmm. to the point where if, he, if I came to the show early, he would have me go backstage and we'd chat backstage and we'd stand off to the side and watch the audience come in, right? <laughs> and if they were old, and they weren't that much older than him because he was in his mid. He was my age back then. OK, right. <laughs> but he dyed his hair and mm -hmm. he had I don't know if he had any cosmetic surgery, but, you know, he didn't look as old as the audience that was coming in. But some of them clearly were his age. So he'd see them coming in and he'd go oh, for Christ's sake, old people again. Oh, and then. <laughs> and then and then because he, he's used to the match game and prices right audiences people right. that wanted to go to these shows. And, and then the little kids, the little eight and nine year old kids would file in and he'd go, oh, fucking kids, fucking kids, fucking kids. And at first, at first, I, I, I said to him, Johnny, you don't mean that, do you? And he, and he just would look at me, you know, because he'd been in the business a long time. But after a while, it just got really funny because this is what he would do. He'd go, OK, I got to start in two minutes and they're still coming. And he goes, oh, God, fucking kids, fucking kids, fucking kids. OK, here we go. Hi, kids. How are you? <laughs> So good that you're here. We're so happy you're here. And the one thing that he always loved doing, because the old people, they would shoot seven concentration half hour shows in one day. Oh, shit. <laughs> they would do four shows with one audience yeah. and three with another. And when you fill that show with altacockers, you know, people 75, 80 years old, they'd start to fall asleep. Because let's face it, concentration ain't the most exciting game in the world. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he would notice, <laughs> I still remember this. He would notice people starting to doze off during mm -hmm. his warmups at mm -hmm. the beginning. And he did the greatest warmup of he and Norman Lear were the inspiration for me to want to do that. Mm -hmm. And he would do this. He would find some old lady that would be nodding off and he'd always start <laughs> low. He'd say, well, how do you do, ladies and gentlemen? My name is Johnny Olson. I've been the announcer for Goodson and Todman for well over 100 years. And if you don't recognize my face and you don't know my name, you might know me for a little thing. And he would slowly walk over to somebody who was nodding off, an 80-year-old woman. He goes, you might know me because I usually say this on one of the shows I work on. Come on down! <laughs> And that person, I was waiting for one of these old ladies to have a heart attack 
Because he would be like, <laughs> but the funniest thing would be watching these old people jump out of their chair when he'd go, come on down to them. Everybody, the crew, everybody cracked up. But that's how he vented his frustrations out on those those types of audiences, kids and old people. There was nothing in, in the middle. And he got spoiled by the great audiences that they had at Match Game and Price oh, yeah. is Right. But this is how I learned the business. I didn't learn it by opening books and saying, okay, now you take camera one and you mark it and put it here. You take camera two and put it here i mean there was some of that but the best education i got was learning from these old pros i met danny thomas when i was 17 he gave me 45 minutes of his time on a show that we were booking audiences for he was astounded that this 17 year old kid knew so much about his career i just you know while everybody else was getting stoned in the early 70s (laughs) And listening to David Bowie and Alice Cooper, I was reading books on classic TV and listening to Tommy Dorsey, yep. you know, which explains my love life back then. Uh. <laughs> um, you know, and I was watching Three Stooges and Laurel and Hardy while everybody else was oh. watching Deliverance and stuff like that. I just, you know, but what happened was to make a long story longer. <laughs> I've been going to these shows for so long that the guy who was booking the audiences for them got to know me like everybody else. And it turned out that he lost the guy that was working for him part-time at Universal Studios, handing out tickets for the shows and at the Chinese theater where people go to look at the hand and footprints of everybody. And he said, you know, you've been around here a lot. I know you want to get in the business. I need somebody to work for me. And he not only hired me, but he hired me at 50 cents an hour more than my dad was paying me to work in the law (laughs) office. So, so long, Dick Shostak. I was now working in television and that that was my end so these last 15 minutes for that one little sentence answers your question i hope that's how i got it well i actually didn't know it i mean had i already known this i might well i might not have even had you on here because i mean okay i I know uh, yeah i know bits and pieces based on what you say you know on your you know own show but i mean it's like you know you don't have time to just do your own thing and it's you know i think it's fun to be a guest on occasion i would think right (laughs) so far the don't ask me ask the people watching this uh nobody Not, um, anyway, um, so if you had not become like a warm up guy or anything that you did in that industry, um, but still worked in, the, was there anything you didn't want to do, or were you just like, I got to get in there, I'll work even in the, in the accounting department or anything just to be in the industry? That's how I felt leading up to the story of handing out TV tickets, because that is really scraping the bottom of the barrel, right? Having to having to take a stack of tickets for a show that you don't know who's going to show and who's not going to show and go up and get the tourists as they're exiting or entering Universal Studios and hoping that -hmm. they'll take these tickets and show up Mm -hmm. that that is scraping the bottom of the barrel. So in the beginning, and that's something I learned from Lucille Ball, but I was already in the business six years when she came into my life, is that you accept in in show business because it's so you don't know where your next break is going to come. You accept anything in show business, especially in Hollywood, with the hopes that somebody will notice you and and scoot you up that ladder. So in those days, I would have Mm -hmm. done anything now. Now I won't well, do anything. Well, yeah, but 
now it's the other side of the whatever yeah. um but Way you know, it, it's just funny you know my i you probably don't know this about me or my dad uh, my dad actually worked in television in the 50s um he is now 83 84 in a month and he's still with us he worked at bakersfield and he oh, had that's a, just a hop skip and a stab from up here yeah and uh how how he got the job he had a cousin named jimmy who's long passed away but he got a job and it was a paying job setting up chairs for live audience for uh, the shows on uh, KERO in Bakersfield. And he was too late. He was too lazy. He did not want to do it. So my dad took it over and that was my dad's first job. He was still in high school and, you know, he actually stayed in the station for a couple of years, but I always bugged my dad. See, unlike your dad, who was like a lawyer and didn't want to be in TV, my dad was like, eh, this is fun. He, but my dad was more interested in being an engineer and all that other stuff. And he did all the did electronics. He, did he stuff. get promoted to run in the control tower? Yeah, he ran camera. He did everything. He, there you, know, you go. The, so you he, know, got he, his, he got his dream fulfilled. What yeah. I wanted to do at first was write. Yeah. That's what I wanted to do. And when Norman Lear moved the shows in there, I, I pitched some story ideas at 20 years old yeah. to these writers. I got laughed out of the room on a couple of them. But again, you know, you, you do what you can. I took writing courses in, in at Cal State Northridge. I had Nate Monaster, who was a sitcom writer in the 50s, was one of my teachers. Eddie Shotarov was one of my teachers. The mm -hmm. great thing about Northridge, unlike UCLA, is the people that worked in the TV department there actually worked in the industry. Tom Burroughs, who directed mm -hmm. Chivalry, one of the rock shows locally in LA in the <laughs> early mid-60s, was my directing. It was my counselor, and I had him for directing one class. I had Bob Pakerny, who was a writer on Happy Days, who wow. really taught me everything I knew as far as directing. I mm -hmm. had these hands-on teachers there that were wonderful that mm -hmm. I wouldn't have had had I gotten into UCLA because though for the most part at least at that time those people were professors they had yeah. maybe worked in the industry but they they were career teachers these guys were retired and now teaching 50s TV to them so so I, Ralph Levy was a, a teacher of mine yeah. At, at Cal State, Ralph Levy, who directed Jack Benny and Burns and Allen in the 50s. So I, you know, I got very lucky. I mean, there was a reason why I wasn't accepted to UCLA. My destiny was Cal State Northridge, because, again, that's where I met Lucy. But yeah. going back to what you said about your dad, at least he fulfilled what he wanted to do. Yeah. And I realized that the writing scripts and everything, even though I was I thought I was good at it, was just way <laughs> too competitive. And mm. when I found out what warm up guys were getting for doing the doing the shows, I said, no, 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 I, I need the attention. I, I desperately want people to like me. So I, I want to stand in to this day and I, I'll stand up in front of an audience and they can make fun of my high voice. They can make fun of me anyway. They can say or do whatever they want. At least I'm in charge and I'm having a good time and they're mm -hmm. having a good time. Now, is that the only kind of break uh into show business that what am i trying to ask well like did you ever do just like straight stand-up or anything like that it was no, always and, uh, affiliated with funny. this warm-up it, stuff it's funny yeah. because the warm-up thing happened as a result of the ticket thing okay yeah. the warm-up guy had different they knew that i wanted to get into warm-ups and i had watched norman lear and johnny olson and all of these people and right. for years it was like yeah kid just go peddle your tickets i had <laughs> I had worked myself up to page supervisor, um, uh, uh, an independent company took over Metromedia from the studio. And I, I left Metromedia and went to work for this uh, lady who was great, got me in the door and all that kind of stuff. The, the original guy that I worked for had moved on and I'd worked for her and she knew that I wanted to do warmups. And what happened was um, 
one morning at different strokes in 1982, the warm-up guy was who lived in Long Beach and Universal, as you know, is in the valley, got yeah. stuck in traffic. That's a long drive. Even back then, the 405 was screwed. Um, and and uh, they wanted to start the show and there was nobody to do the warm-up. So the line producer ah. came up to me and said, well, you've always wanted to do a warm-up. None of us here want to do it or can do it. Just go do it. Wow. And, you know, <laughs> I, I wasn't prepared. I was, Trial but I, fire. No, but I had seen enough. Yeah. And and remember, uh, my job was to book the studio audience. I not only was responsible for handing out tickets, but I booked bus groups in church yeah. groups and school groups. And this was different strokes. And of course, we had the old people and the kids. But <laughs> you see, I was on the phone with these groups, talking to them and booking them. So when I went up there and took the microphone, they applauded because they knew me. So as, but the, <laughs> the producers didn't know this. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those situations like. I compare it to Carol O'Connor in the fourth year of All in the Family. He could fart and get a standing ovation. Right, Because right. everybody knew him and loved him and nothing he said could do no wrong. So that's how it was with me. And I'm getting laughs. And I'm not even trying to be funny. And they're laughing because they already <laughs> know me. You know, it's like, oh, wow, Stu's talking to us today. What is this all about? And the producers are standing off to the side, not really paying that much attention to me other than the fact that I'm getting laughs. Mm -hmm. So the line producer said, when the warm-up guy shows up, just hand him the microphone. Just wherever you are, just stop and hand him the microphone. And we'll pay you what we're going to pay him because, you know, you can't do this. you got to be, you know, in the union and all that. And this will get you your union card. Oh, so cool. about, about two minutes after he got there, I noticed him in the corner of my eye, right? And he was not happy. He was standing <laughs> to the side like this. And then I said, I was in the middle of something and I saw him out of the corner of my eye and I said, ladies and gentlemen, and I introduced him and I just handed him the mic and I ran like hell out of there <laughs> because I knew he, he wasn't happy about it. And, you know, for two reasons, one, I'm doing his job. And number two, now he knows that they know that somebody can take over for him if he can't do right. the show. And yeah. that's the worst in show business. That's the worst thing you can have is that there's somebody waiting in the wing, wings to knock you off. And I was very competitive in those days and I was a jerk and I <laughs> should have been a lot nicer to him, but I wasn't. And I had never got a chance to apologize to him. He, you know, he went on and still had his career. I had my, he ended up being one of the writers of the Teenage Ninja Turtle hmm. movie. So he didn't do half bad. Huh. Um, but anyway, but that, that's how I got into doing warmups. It turned out that that season, one of the writers was doing the warmup on another show over there, Silver Spoons, the yeah. Ricky Schroeder show. And don't, talk to me about ricky schroeder now please don't um and you know why mark yeah yeah i actually okay. it took me a second i was just yeah, yeah, yeah. i was thinking of him then not now <laughs> you know? then, then he he was a smart ass little kid but he was like a younger brother to me and we we got along just fine yeah. um you, you know uh, again i won't go into that but anyway the writer that was doing uh the warm-up there a good friend of mine bob isles who i've had on my show several times they needed him in the control room because he would spot stuff on the monitors while they were shooting the shows that they didn't see in the control room because that, that's a, the control room is like grand central station there's a million things going on so they needed a warm-up guy and the line producer at different strokes happened to be the line producer for silver spoons huh. so they had the silver spoons guy come over and and watch i i started doing fill-in warm-ups all over the place they saw me on another show and they said yeah he's fine bring him over and that's how that and that from there it blossomed from silver spoons i did i filled in on facts of life other production companies heard of me i started working okay. out of the norman lear shows and and it it just blossoms because you know it's a small industry when it comes to stuff like that and your word gets around the problem is is when i hit 40 i started to gray a little bit 
and the producers that I were work, was working for weren't working as much because they were in their 50s and we all kind of got aged out of it. In other words, oh, wow. mm. you, won't, you won't see me at 65 with this color hair doing a warm up for any show real soon. So oh. and that's why I started my own show, because I missed the audience. Mm, okay. and, 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 you know, for 15 years, I had no audience on the show except those that I thought were out there watching me and, and assumed. And now that I'm doing the show the way I'm doing it, I've got the audience back right. by Zoom, and I'm having a blast. It's like the old days. I have people to play <laughs> off. So it all comes full circle, you know? Now, before we get into that, I, I'm curious because you did a number of things all at the same time. And I, I just wondered, how did you do it? And um, the origins of all what do you, this. What thing. do you mean, Mark? How did you do it? So you, you were doing this warm-up stuff. At the same time, you were working with Lucy and being her film curator. At the same time, you had started your own showcase video right. and possibly other stuff that I'm not even thinking of. So how did you and juggle and, your... And, and still no love life. <laughs> well, there you go. That answered that. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, how did you find the time to juggle? It seems like the warm-up thing would take most of your time. Is that no. correct or no? No. Oh. No. Uh, that was the oh. beauty of the warm-up thing. Once I had my act down, and it was different. After I'd have a set act of 10 or 12 minutes to tell them about the microphones and tell them how we shot the show and tell them how important it is that, that they enjoy the show because it gives the actors energy. You know, all the stuff that you normally do. Once that was out of the way, my, my specialty was just being able to ad-lib and play off of them. Uh, I'd do TV game show type games with them during the breaks. If we had a long costume change or a set change and I knew I'd have five or 10 minutes to fill, I'd get up and I'd play name that TV tune with them. I'd have a boom box with me. And in those <laughs> days when TV theme songs meant something and yep. there were still TV theme songs, that always played really well. As, as the years went on and I was still playing Andy Griffith and Dobie Gillis and stuff and the audiences got younger and younger, that, that act fell on its butt. I, <laughs> I had to start pulling stuff like SpongeBob and <laughs> and and and, and uh, uh, Hillary Duff, whatever that show was of her, oh, yeah. stuff that I family matters. Lizzie McGuire, stuff. yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, I, I had to get into all this Disney channel, and yeah. and I lost interest in that whole bit. But yeah. um, um, it surprisingly did not take a lot of time because uh, uh, once I had that stuff set, I would on usually the show shot Tuesdays or Fridays. So on Mondays and Thursdays, I would go down to the studio at four o'clock and watch the camera run through with the producers mm -hmm. to see how long the show was, to see where the long breaks would be, uh, to meet the guest actors and make sure I knew their credits and pronounce their names correctly. Mm -hmm. And then Friday, I would show up about, we do we'd usually do two shows, a five and an eight or somewhere around there. I would get there about three just to play it safe with the traffic and just relax for a little bit. So and, and then, you know, I would leave 10, 11 o'clock as the years went on, the, the, the 9, 10, 11 became 11, 12, 1 a.m. because everything was micromanaged. We haven't got time to go into that now. But the whole yeah. the whole uh, face of the industry changed. And yeah. there were like, well, well don't they take forever to do a show now? You know, like yes, more toward the end yeah. of my career, which was about 20 years ago, yeah. <laughs> you not only had the producers. You had the studio if it was Paramount. And then you had the network if it was NBC or CBS and everybody had to have a say to keep their jobs. So mm -hmm. we used to do two takes 
We'd do one take, the audience would be great, right? <laughs> We'd do a second take just for backup in case we needed it, or, or, or there would be a minor change, like maybe if we change this line, it might get a bigger laugh. And I'd right. have fun with the audience. I'd always say, okay, now this is where you guys get to be actors. You've got to pretend like you've never seen any of this and laugh in all the same places when we do this again, okay? Only louder, because you know where the laughs are now. And right. I was really good at keeping the audience's energy level up, even at 9, 10 o'clock. But when all of this stuff started to get micromanaged, we would we would do stuff five six seven times and i would be honest with them too i'd say guys they're rewriting the dialogue i don't care if you don't understand it laugh yeah. laugh or this is going to be motel six and you're not oh, going to get morning and they, they thought it was hysterical but they would cooperate and yep. the producers even though some of them were down there on the stage they didn't pay attention to what i was saying they didn't hear me tell them this all i got at the end of the show is i don't know how you got that audience to laugh at the sixth time we've done this but whatever it is keep doing it you're great so i got all kinds of good little did i know i'm like bribing them i'm giving them milky way candy bars to keep their energy level up you know i'm doing all kinds. but it was fun it was fun mm -hmm. they were with me and i was with them now i've forgotten your question well, I mean, so you explained that you it sounded like you did the warm ups like two days a week, basically. Right. Okay. Well, that's it. Okay. So yeah. if, if Lucy needed anything in the 80s, you know, mm -hmm. before she died in 89, Entertainment Tonight was not the tabloid piece of crap that it is now. Right. I remember uh, that. Leonard yeah. Malton was there and yeah. they and Gary Grossman, <laughs> and they had all of these people that loved what I loved. So anytime mm -hmm. they needed a clip from Lucy's vault or my own, because my, I had my own archives, right. they would call me and, and uh, you know, I'd run my video business pretty much full time during the week because in those days I'd get 30, 40 orders a week. Right. And you said and, that before. That's why I was saying. How'd you find the time to do all this? Well, the warm-up was only two days a week. Okay. And Lucy only called me once once I inventoried everything for them in the early 80s. She only called me when they needed to send a clip to somebody. Oh, okay. And they let me have uh duplicate copies, master copies of everything in my Chatsworth office at the time. Oh, okay. I don't even think I was in Chatsworth yet. No, I was still renting a condo, but I had everything <laughs> in the condo in Canoga Park. <laughs> um, so that I wouldn't have to go to their vault and pull it and transfer it. So okay. if somebody somebody was doing a retrospective on Lucy and wanted a clip of, of Jack Benny on Here's Lucy, I had a three-quarter tape that I could make a copy of, and then they'd send a courier over and I would hand it to them. So it all worked. I had a lot, believe it or not, I had a lot more energy then than I have now. <laughs> um, and I was able to juggle, juggle all of this. The video okay. business was the full-time business. Okay. I, I had left the ticket business. I quit handing out tickets and booking groups and stuff when I got hired to do Silver Spoons in 1983. So got I got in the business in 74, eight, nine, whatever that is, nine long years of putting up with irate producers when we didn't have every seat filled <laughs> and you know all of that. But it paid off because I, I, that was a stepping stone to the warm up. And right. college was a stepping stone for Lucy. Yeah. And, and then I ended up going to work on Lucy's show because she wanted people that worked for her around her because she hadn't been on television on a regular series in 12 years. So everything was luck and timing and a little bit of talent. That's that's the okay. point of all. OK, I mean, my my impressions of in just it's my own imagination, obviously, is like of working for Lucy is kind of like Steve Stollier with working for. Groucho, you know, like you're there almost like all the time, you know, but I guess that's not really no, the case. No, no, yeah. no, I wasn't yeah. there. I was there a lot. 
I yeah. would d- deliver stuff to them all the time. Gary would, uh, Morton, her husband, would find mm-hmm. something in the vault. And, oh, God, we should make a, a VHS of this so it's not just on film. The films hadn't started to disintegrate yet, but it's a pain to set up a projector. And they had VCRs and, you know, the whole bottom level of their house. And so he would, he would call me up and say, uh, you know, get this out of the vault and transfer this for us and bring it to the house. So, you know, it was full time, but it wasn't required of me to work for them for, until the series came 1986 then i was there full time right. so i i was able to juggle this stuff but there were plenty of days when i was up till two three in the morning dubbing tape <laughs> for my video customers yeah don't, yeah don't kid yourself there it was a seven day thing again no love life <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get there i guess uh, but the, uh i'm curious um when you got to lucy's vault in the first place mm-hmm. Was it organized or was it a mess? And what was in there? What did she have? Just everything from uh, RKO days or what? No, no. <laughs> you know, she, had, or... she had some features, but those were at the house. And what happened was Howard McClay was her longtime publicist, and he was in charge of all of that stuff. Mm. And uh, he was with her from the 50s, from the Desi days. Mm. And he had a massive heart attack. I think it was a heart attack. He died in 1981. Mm. I had that class with Lucy in 79, and I kept in touch with them. Um, I don't think I'm speaking out of school now because it's 40 some years later, but I had contacts in the bootleg world for feature films on VHS and beta. And so I had copies of E.T. and I had a Woody Allen films before there was any kind of, you know, Magnetic Video was the first company to put out a handful of 20th Century Fox films. They put out Hello, Dolly and Mash and Patton. But but uh, I had access to Star Wars and all of this stuff (laughs) in the late 70s that I never told anybody because we were all terrified of the FBI in those days. But I told Gary Morton because I wanted to keep in touch with him and Lucy and I wanted to score brownie points. And when he found out that I had access to Lenny, the Dustin Hoffman movie that he was in playing a Milton Berle type, yeah, yeah, that I would love to get a copy of that. And I got it to him. Hmm. And uh, that's basically what started the whole thing was getting huh. him bootleg copies of movies because they weren't out uh, legitimately. And, and he knew that I had the video business and I had done a documentary on I Love Lucy for another class I was working, I, I was taking, directing a documentary, and I gave them a rough cut of it to, for their, you know, for their criticisms or comments. They had no criticisms. They said, this is great. You, you know this stuff better than we do. <laughs> so based on that and based on the fact that my video business had just started in 79 mm-hmm. and the fact that I was able to get Gary what he wanted, I was their choice to replace at least Howard's film vault end of it. And to answer your question about was it organized, it was organized, oh, but it okay. was organized with a with a shelf number and a title. OK, mm. but there was no mention of the condition of the film, mm. whether it was a syndicated print or whether it was an original Philip Morris print, all of that. So when they decided that I was going to take over that job, the first thing they said was, you've got to go in there and break all of this down. It was all computerized, you know, uh, tracked paper you know, mm. uh, with it. And he, he didn't know what it meant. And for me, this is a kid in a candy store. I walk in there <laughs> and there's every, I love Lucy, every here's Lucy, every Lucy show there's negatives and camera outs on here's Lucy. Cause that was the only thing they still owned at the time. There's mm-hmm. her specials. There's her appearances on other shows. There's kinescopes from the fifties of her on what's my line. There's kinescopes of the Ed Sullivan show that she's on. I'm like in hog uh, heaven. Yeah. And so <laughs> it took me about six months 
but I re-inventory the inventory in a way that they can look at it and say, okay, we need the episode where Lucy's in the starch vat. And they can turn to it and say, starch vat, number 87, bonus bucks. That's what I did. <laughs> That's what I did. Now, I knew this stuff, but I had to make it easy for them to know. Right. So, And then whenever, they, whenever <coughs> anybody needed anything, <coughs> they would call that off their office. And Wanda, Lucy's secretary, would call me and mm-hmm. say, Gary needs you to pull this. And then I inventoried everything at the house. They had three-quarter inch master tapes on all the Here's Lucy's at the house. They had a handful of her RKO features. That was all in the projection room outside mm-hmm. of the house. And so I inventoried that. That was nothing compared <laughs> to the vault that... Uh, it was Producers Film Center in Hollywood on Sycamore where they stored everything. And the Goodson Todman stuff was stored there. The mm. Danny Thomas stuff was a Carl Reiner had all the Dick Van Dyke shows there. It was an amazing place. Mm. And I got to know the owner of the place really well. And I had carte blanche uh, going in and out of there. Nobody, nobody outside of their own employees was allowed back there. But Bob Lobianco, the guy who ran the place, trusted me, let mm. me back. And as a result of that, they, Bob, recommended me to Jack and Elaine LaLanne and I did the same thing for them. So just like with the mm-hmm. warm up, your reputation, your word gets out. And I'm still mm-hmm. uh, uh, working for the Lanes today. That's why they still advertise on my right, show. Right, right. I've seen that. Yeah. yeah. And um, did you produce those videos that they advertise on those commercials? Or no, the, I did. Oh, okay. a, I, I did. A, we, I okay. did produce a, a one. I did the Jack LaLanne commemorative special in 1990. We shot that in my living room in Chatsworth. And that's where <laughs> I learned that Jack LaLanne was just like Milton Berle and Bob Hope and Sid Caesar and all these old school guys are. If you didn't have your shit together, man, you'd hear about it. So <laughs> we were all on our toes for that. But Jack was great. I loved him. He's sweet yeah. man. And he got me in shape after all those years. He one of the few guys on television who practiced what he preached. Yeah. Um, but uh, um, what did you ask me? Well, I was just kind of just asking, you know, because you have the ad for Jack LaLanne and oh, oh, the video. Uh, yeah, there's videos. Video. I didn't video. know if you produced the videos that they Now, what happened was this. Them. And yeah. again, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but right. uh, in inventory in their vault, I found there the old two inch black and white tapes oh. that he did when he first came to Hollywood in 59 and 60 for KTTV. Nobody mm-hmm. had seen those at that time in 40 years. Right. And I said to Elaine, we should try and find a place that can transfer transfer these and let's put like a week's worth of shows out and have Jack and you do new wraparounds for him. She goes, Oh, what a great idea. So, you know, we had no budget on it. They didn't want to spend a lot of money because we didn't know if it was going to sell. So I found a place in Hollywood that could do the old two inch quad transfers. I took a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday show transfer Mm -hmm. all. We got lucky because the Tuesday show, they never stopped in those days. There was no editing. Mm -hmm. They would Mm -hmm. shoot live to tape because there was no budget to go. And you'd have to edit with scissors and stuff. He's in the middle of an exercise. I don't know how well this is going to look, but as he squats, you hear his pants rip (laughs) and you hear the crew laugh. And he says, you know, that's going to happen if you gain too much weight. That can happen when you're working. He was and I isolated that. And I said, we've got bloopers. We've got bloopers for this. And there were a couple of other other minor ones. But but it was great because this was like, uh, you know, a wealth of classic TV that nobody had seen. So that's on that. Anyway, we got a lot of mileage out of it. We made money on it and everything. But then um, uh, Elaine's son, Danny, kind of took over the business as they were getting older and he wanted to redo that thing without the wraparounds and just show the shows because mm-hmm. I guess he didn't he thought Jack was 75 when we shot the thing and I thought he was in great shape but Danny felt that the Jack LaLanne at 40 
and the Jacqueline at 75, even though he was still in great shape, it was too much of a contrast and he was afraid that people would be turned off by it. You know, again, it's, <laughs> it's the family. Yeah. I don't mess around, but anyway, right. they redid it. Um, yeah. I've got the original master with the way we did it though. If you want to copy Mark. Okay. Sounds good. Um, going back to Lucy, because you know, I'm a big Lucy fan too. I've got, I probably became more of a Lucy fan uh, thanks to the shows you've done where you show like the conventions and everything like that and stuff like that. Tom Watson will be. And I kind of wish that I had gone, but you know, I didn't do that much travel. I don't do much traveling now. I just uh, like. Why do you think we're in Pine Mountain Club? We don't go anywhere. (laughs) But um, I guess my question was, you know, related to Jack Lane on the Lucy DVDs that came out for I Love Lucy, Here's Lucy and Lucy show. uh, Did you any of those archival videos? Are those the ones that are on DVD or are those just like prints that she had? I, I don't understand the question. What well, do you I mean? mean, the ones that you get, if you bought the MPI series of Here's Lucy, are those the prints that were in that vault? Is that no, exact I, print or is it just a copy that you No, had? no. The the uh, the MPI Here's Lucy's are the telepictures masters. They, were, they came from Gary's negatives, Lucy okay. and Gary's negatives. But those were struck in the 80s for one inch tape syndication uh Uh, they may have been the two versions of them there's the cut down ones so that stations can have six minutes per half hour and then there's the full versions they had two two versions cut so so they were existing masters that were just retransferred in high def uh for those even though they're not in high def they could be uh, if they, they could be transferred to Blue Way, that's why they look so good. They were the, the and Telepictures, Warner Brothers did the original transfers on those in the 80s. That's okay. That was, I was still working for them then. Did you have anything to do with that at all, or no. you just were? No, aware in of fact, it? I think those okay. were done right before I went to it. Those were done in 81. Okay. Okay. Um, and then they went into syndication. They had a tough time selling it because they wanted too much money. Uh, I think by 84 is when they finally went into syndication. But those were done right before I came in, because now that you're reminding me, those were coming back to the vault as I was working for them. Uh, okay. So, okay. yeah, they went out to telepictures, the, 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 the 35 millimeter negatives, and they did a, a one inch transfer to them. Okay. And that's that's what are out there. Now, the I Love Lucy's and the Lucy show. And forgive me, I don't remember who's the gentleman that helped you on. And he's been on your show many times about Tom I Watson. Love. Yeah, Tom Watson. Um, did you work with him back in the day in conjunction with Lucy? How, how did that all work out? Or Tom, Tom was vice president of research at CBS in okay. New York for many years. They transferred him out here in 1975, I think. Okay. I'm trying to remember. It may have been earlier than that. I met Tom in 1977 when I was w- booking audiences for All in the Family because Bob Schiller and Bob Weisskopf were writers on All in the Family. And they, of course, had written I Love Lucy the last three years it was on the air and The Lucy Show. Um, and so I got to know Bob, the two Bobs, really well because I was a major Lucy fan and uh, also a major All in the Family fan. And I was fascinated by the way the show worked. And it was Bob Schiller who told me about Tom Watson. Uh, He had just started his We Love Lucy fan club. And so I met Tom in either 77 or 78. And that's that's when he had first gotten transferred out here. And he stayed at CBS until Lucy sold, until Lucy, she didn't sell it. They coaxed her back into TV with Life with Lucy. Mm. Um, She was aware of Tom all those years. He was the president of her fan club then. And she had a ton of admiration and respect for him because he never published anything 
racy. There was never any Desi's cheating on which hooker of the week type of thing. <laughs> there was never any of that. It was all positive. And, and um, he went to all of the, anytime she was on the tonight show or Dinah or had a special, you know, he would call Wanda and w Wanda would get him into the show. And Lucy always wanted him backstage, mm -hmm. um, you know, to thank him for the wonderful work he was doing with the fan club. She really appreciated it. And then when uh, life with Lucy was bought by ABC, uh, uh, Gary offered us jobs uh, as associate producers and Tom who had almost 20 years with CBS as a vice president left his job to work on this show um, because of his love for Lucy and you know you know what happened as a result of that yeah. <laughs> they replaced him at CBS and he was out of a job and Lucy and Gary felt terrible mm -hmm. when we were canceled. So he got Howard McClay's old job as publicist. They kept me on for the film end of it, mm -hmm. but then Tom became her publicist until the day she died, writing all the press releases, writing her speeches for her with her for mm -hmm. acceptance for awards and all that. He basically mm -hmm. became Howard McClay. And then when he died, he was able to get another job in research with another company in Hollywood. Right. Um, but that was so nice of them, kept him at the same salary, even though they had nothing in production, paid him the same that CBS was paying him. Hmm. So that and that's and that's when we got closer because we worked together on Life with Lucy. And got then it. we were going to do a Lucy convention in 1986 because Lucy needed some cheering up. Hmm. That's the first time she'd ever been canceled. So one of the things we were talking about was doing this and having her and Gary there. They eventually nixed the idea because Lucy felt it was too self-serving. Mm -hmm. then 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 she died um and then we started doing the conventions in the mid 90s right. 10 years later with gary's blessings he was still around then right. but again he didn't want any part of it because he, he felt that hmm. if he was there it, people would think it was his stamp on it and he said this thing he was very good about this he said this thing has got to stand on its own merits with you and tom running it well tom ran it i worked for tom it was <laughs> he put up the money and did yeah. all that but i was on board and you know, was one of the, the top echelon, if you want to say that. Yeah. And it, he, Gary was very impressed. And we almost had him convinced to come to one of them just as a guest. And mm -hmm. then he got lung cancer and he died. Mm -hmm. So we, we were able to go out and visit him a couple of times and we yeah. tried our best to get him to come. But he just said, he said, I'll either break down in tears, you know, and he had remarried by this point, mm -hmm. or people will think that I orchestrated this. And I don't want, I don't want people to think that I had anything to do with this. He, that was his thing. It has to stand on its own merit. And it did for six yeah. years. Yeah. So, and, and uh, it was work, 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 work. I didn't get to enjoy it much while we were doing it, but yeah. I'm glad we videotaped everything. I directed yeah. almost, if I wasn't appearing on stage, doing a panel discussion or hosting a game show, I was in the booth, directing a camera crew yeah. and i'm glad we got it because yeah. all of those people are dead now right yeah and exactly we've got them talking about this, especially after that aaron sorkin piece of shit film came out <laughs> we've got the real bob and madeline and the real behind the scenes people talking about what it was really like there it's not a distorted aaron sorkin-esque view of what went on back there Right. So that's all I'll say. I'll have to agree with you on that. It, it, first, when you were complaining about it, I said, ah, it's just Stu complaining about something. But, well, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> but sometimes you're correct. And it's like, wow. Sometimes. Yeah. The, the, the only person. little mongoloid sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> the only time that the only person that kind of came out good is that uh, 
J.K. Simmons as Fred Mertz, and I yeah, think it's only because, only or, because, or William Frawley, I should say. Yeah. He was a sympathetic character in this, and it couldn't have been further from the truth. He and Lucy never went drinking out together. And oh yeah, yeah, that never happened. You know what Frawley was doing when he wasn't on the set? He was in his dressing room playing the ponies. Yeah. Or he was at a bar drinking. Yeah, or at a ball game. Sometimes he gets it. <laughs> yeah, there yeah. was no camaraderie. There. I mean, they got along. Lucy right. adored him. But yeah. there was no behind the scenes, you know. That, right. that, that, how, if that was the case, Lucy would have asked the writers to write more scenes with just her and Fred. Right. Like two in the whole series. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> the whole, that, don't, you're, you're getting me all upset, Mark. Uh... <laughs> No, the I didn't want to go into that too? anyway. Is that what you want? Well, you brought it up. Anyway, <laughs> I yes, actually, you're, you're actually, I actually wanted to ask this question. Um, so a couple times when Tom is on your show, and this has related to do to the home videos again, and also the vaults. So I'm kind of curious. I guess I wasn't understanding what was in the vaults. Is for like uh, I Love Lucy and the Lucy Show. Um, again, did they go to Lucy's vaults or did CBS have all this stuff? So you went to CBS's vaults or it's a combination. That's CBS, really my question. CBS, Paramount owned the Lucy show. Yeah. CBS owned I Love Lucy. They, the uh, the Arnezes sold I Love Lucy in 1957 to CBS right. for $5 million so they could buy RKO. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, uh, CBS owned I Love Lucy, Lock, Stock and Barrel. Lucy had 16 millimeter copies of all of the I Love Lucy original broadcasts and one syndicated print when they were first put into syndication for Canada in the mid 50s. And they're slightly different than the syndicated prints that are on the the DVDs. So uh, as you know, then CBS and Paramount merged in the late 90s. So CBS acquired I Love Lucy or the Lucy show and Paramount acquired I Love Lucy. They're all under one roof. So oh, okay. the only thing that isn't part of that is here's Lucy. Lucy Arnaz owns those. Right. MPI has the uh, the home video rights to them. Um, so no, they they pulled from their own vaults because all of that stuff was sold to them, and they they combed the Paramount vaults for the the Lucy show. Um, they did come to me for some of the bonus materials. Oh, because okay. Lucy had some stuff that was one of a kind. One of which was the 75 minute version of Cruise to Havana, the first special they did oh. in 57. For a long time, Lucy had the only surviving print of it. It was in 16 millimeter. And that made the rounds for a while. I, I found that uh, they, she didn't even know they had it. She had <laughs> several different prints of Cruise to Havana. All of them were in big, huge one hour film cans, mm-hmm. 62 rerun, 63 rerun, 64. And then there was one that was three reels long. And I said, why is this one three reels long? And before I finished the sentence, I went, this must be the 75 minute original version. And I unspooled it. And you want to talk about wetting my pants? Oh, (laughs) I called Lucy. I said, I found, I can't believe I found the 75 minute version. And it didn't phase her at all. She said, oh, we have it. Okay. (laughs) She she didn't get excited. Like I I said, Uh, and at the time they hadn't found the kinescope pilot that was done on Gower. And then that, this was the Holy grail next to that. This was the first thing. And, and so that made the rounds. And then when Tom took over the, I love Lucy's uh, uh, DVD set from Greg Oppenheimer, Greg did the first five seasons. Tom did the last season and seven, eight, and nine. Uh, that's, That's when he ordered a full investigation of every CBS vault and they found a 35 millimeter print of the 75 minute version it was there all along and that's what's on the dvd Mm, okay 
Now, in the vault, I mean, obviously you said you didn't have the pilot, which wasn't it the the clown that had it? You know, the Pepito. Yeah, Pepito. Yeah. Right. And, and then CBS found their own copy of it. Thanks oh. to Tom's <laughs> diligence. And because Pepito's uh, print, uh, for some reason, had the first 15 or 20 seconds chopped off on it. And it was mm-hmm. it was somewhere in Pepito's house and the leader and the stuff at the beginning had, had gotten caught somewhere and got cut off. And so uh, Greg Oppenheimer kind of got uh, Bob Lamont back to be the announcer. And Bob Lamont's voice was like mine in the 50s. And when he came in to do the part that needed to be, he's like, yeah, me age. It's a new show and new show ball. And he, he augmented, sped yeah. it up a little bit. And he's saying, doesn't it sound great? It sounds just like he did in 1950. I said, uh, no. Nah. But anyway, that's all they had for yeah. years. And then Tom, due to his okay. diligence, when they were doing the Blu-rays for I Love Lucy, found CBS's copy of it ah, somewhere okay. at CBS. Okay. Without Tom Watson there, CBS wouldn't know what they had. Right. <laughs> um, then other, a couple other I Love Lucy things. Did Lucy have the Christmas show that was never in syndication? Yes. Okay. She had, she had uh, okay. one print of that. I got that transferred right away. Okay. I had yeah. already seen bits of that because that had been shown on Arona Barrett special um cbs had found their print luckily she had her print of that too okay. so yeah that 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 was one of the first things i transferred to preserve okay and then did she have the i love lucy movie that no you, know, oh, you want to know the story behind that yeah <laughs> i don't know where that's from <laughs> the last year of our convention 2001 we we'd heard that this there was this movie that had been made with three episodes of i love lucy spliced together with wraparounds right. and you know the whole thing in the 90s after she died for like 10 years was like okay anything i love lucy that the public hasn't seen is gold anything we can find is great so for the 50th anniversary we were determined to to try to find this film and it went we did know that it whatever whatever elements whatever negatives whatever prints uh, uh, were left went to paramount with the sale of desi lu in 1967, mm. okay? With the exception of I Love Lucy, which went to CBS in 57, when she sold Desilu to Paramount Gulf Western in 1967, everything, because they were on one half of that property, that lot, and there was a brick wall that separated Desilu from Paramount. Well, it's like Berlin. The wall came down <laughs> and everything wow. on the Desilu side became Paramounts, including the film vault. Mm-hmm. So. Dan Kahn, who was the film editor of I Love Lucy, specifically remembered them shooting an episode, uh, the wraparounds, and 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 because it opens with Desi doing the warm up and everything, and then they because they had to figure out a way to explain a feature film that had a laugh track on it because they were splicing three I Love Lucy films together right. that were already married sound and video so that you know there's an audience laughing so they were brilliant they wrote this thing of people getting in line outside that was the actual place where people lined up to go in to watch I Love Lucy and they made it. <coughs> Looked like they were watching a 90 minute I Love Lucy with <laughs> with wraparounds around it was brilliant the way they did it. <clears throat> but Danny Kahn remembered specifically <clears throat> that um, Eddie Sedgwick uh, directed the wraparounds mm-hmm. and then they just and then he he did the editing for this feature film. And you mentioned Bakersfield earlier with your dad. Yep. They actually took the film to Bakersfield to preview it. <laughs> To see how an audience was, well, they wanted someplace safe where the word wouldn't get out if it tanked. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that's it. Then he said it went back on the shelf because they just made the deal with MGM to do the long run trailer. 
And MGM said, we're doing this, you know, Technicolor Cinemascope extravaganza with you. And we don't want this old black and white show with you guys, you know, something that people see on TV. We don't want to be in competition for it. So it got shelved. Hmm. I'll have to ask so my dad about that. Because... Of, no, well, yeah. It's the 50th anniversary of I Love Lucy. And we're yeah. determined to find this film. And Danny Kahn, who was mm-hmm. with us for every convention, was more determined than, uh, than anyone else. So he called his film editing buddies up at Paramount. And he said, I want to drive on on the lot. And I want to go to every single area of film <laughs> storage at Paramount that has anything to do with the Desilu library. Mm. And he says, because I have a feeling it's sitting exactly where it was left in 1953, as long as, but he said, but I don't remember where that is. <laughs> God love this man. This was three or four months before our convention. He went to Paramount every day, every single day and went to different film vaults. And when he found like an untouchables room or a Desilu uh, a Westinghouse room or, you know, anything that had to do with Desilu Lucy show, all the stuff that was done there. And he found a case, an old film case that was labeled Desilu Playhouse. Mm. Now, he assumed it was one of the Westinghouse shows. Right. Okay. But because just like when I found the 75 minute cruise to Havana in three reels, this canister looked too big to have one of the hour shows in it. Mm-hmm. So he opened it up and it was a center track copy of the I Love Lucy film in three big reels. Wow. <laughs> it was labeled Desilu Playhouse because remember what I told you, they previewed it. And then they made the deal for Long Long Trailer, went back on the shelf. Whoever labeled it unspooled the film the first shot after the credits said, that say, I love Lucy, because that's what the film was called, is a shot of the Desi Lou Playhouse sign that uh. was in front of the entrance to the studio door to get in to watch the show. They didn't know what it was, so they just wrote Desi Lou Playhouse on it. Wow. <laughs> so he, found, he found the film. He called us up. I have, I, you know, he was in his 80s when he found this. I thought he was going to have a heart attack. <laughs> he made me look like Helen Keller with the 75 minute thing. <laughs> Well, the next problem we had, remember I said it was center track audio. Yeah. Everybody had switched to a sidetrack audio system. We found one Mm -hmm. company in Hollywood that had a center track audio and we had it uh, transferred right away to three quarter inch. And because it was old equipment, it was a little over a quarter like this. So I I was able to balance it with the equipment I had. And we showed that at the convention. Nobody had seen that film in 48 years when we showed it 48 years. Yeah. Yeah, 48 years. No, nobody had seen it since those people who saw it in Bakersfield in early 1953. And we found out that it was shot the night they shot the handcuffs episode, mm. the wraparounds, because the set for the handcuffs uh, where, uh, where they're in the dressing room where it says your favorite stars on television was on the stage there. Desi had done the warm up twice that night. They held the audience that was there for the handcuffs after they finished the show. He said, we're, we're going to do a film now. We're going to do a feature and you have to pretend like you know, uh, you didn't see any of this because we're going to shoot my warm up. They went back and got into the costumes that they were in for the show that opens that movie, mm. which was the benefit. I think I think it was the benefit. Yeah. And they set up the apartment. The, the apartment had already changed a little bit. They brought back the old furniture and set it all up. Wow. <laughs> and they, they shot this whole warm up a second time to the audience that had already been there for the handcuffs. It's pretty incredible. Huh. But Tom Easy. and I were able to figure that out from looking at 
the backgrounds while Desi was talking. Again, nobody would know that if it wasn't for Tom and I, because, you know, we know this stuff so well. And, yeah. and uh, so we were able to provide liner notes and all that. And eventually CBS took it and released it out on uh, as a separate DVD. And then right. as part of the, Island. which is what I have. Yeah. But we got to uh. thank Dan Khan's persistence for that. And the fact that we were determined <laughs> to show that at the 50th, uh, anniversary of the Lucy of uh, uh, <clears throat> the Lucy Convention celebrating the 50th anniversary of the show. See, I want people to know that this is how passionate we are about this stuff. Yeah. And why we want everybody to share in all of it. Yeah. Well, I knew you had passion about. Uh, isn't that where really? you? <laughs> isn't that where you met Janine or indirectly met Janine because she? Do, do you know, I didn't meet her at the convention because I was oh. married to somebody else at the time, <clears throat> and we don't have time for that. Um, but uh, but she was but, at those conventions. Yes, Janine was okay. at every convention. Janine was the first. Per- Janine was part of the fan club, and then this was pre-internet days when Tom would send out newsletters, and everything was done through the mail. So every year we announced a Lucy convention date. Janine was the first person to send her money in for the whole weekend, oh. and she, <laughs> she became the good luck charm for the whole convention. I didn't know her. She was <laughs> at every convention. She knew me because I was on stage every year doing something. Right, right. <clears throat> we didn't meet till I started my show. Interesting. I but didn't it was, know that. It was, it was a re- as a result <laughs> yeah. Yeah. of the Lucy fan club that we met. Hmm. I do have another Lucy question related to the intro that you said was for I Love Lucy movie. Whenever they did like the occasional flashback episode for like a repeat or something, how did they film those? Did they just tack that at the end of an episode with the audience already there? Or how did they no, film those? No, no, those were all done. The, the, the biggest, most they ever did was when she was pregnant with uh, Desi right. Jr. As yeah. they had to stockpile and, and because reruns were not a commodity back then. A lot of people were just still buying TV sets for the first time when she was pregnant. So what they did to give her more time off and to give the writers uh, a break, uh, they would show a a show from the previous season, which was new to a good percentage of the audience. Um, And and so they might do two or three of those little wraparounds in one day. But uh, if you listen really hard, the laugh tracks on those wraparounds is pretty canned. Oh, okay. So Uh, it's not a live audience audience on those. No, no. a good good actor will always wait for the laughs to subside before they talk. And (laughs) they were more interested in timing those things out because Philip Morris gave them a certain amount of time away in the days before when the commercials, you could work with a sponsor and say, you know, we're 20 seconds long. Can we give you a one minute, 20 ad next week? and take 20 more seconds of show. And in those days, Philip Morris, they sold a lot of cigarettes for Philip Morris. They were more than accommodating. That's why there are some shows in syndication that are fully complete, but are only like 23 minutes, because that was one week where they took away so much time from the sponsor the previous week that they had to have a longer commercial. Oh, so okay. Those mm-hmm. things, the wraparounds were timed to be a specific length. So they kind of had to estimate where the laughs were. And they'd have the crew laugh and stuff like that. But, you know, 10 people laughing as opposed to 100, you don't get that lag. So you can tell when the actors start talking while the laugh is still going on, you know there's no audience there. (laughs) Um, One other kind of rarity, unless there's others that I don't know about. I mean, I'm pretty versed in Lucy now, now that everything's been put on home video, it seems like. Uh, That one Milton Berle show that Lucy and Desi did that's kind of like an I Love Lucy episode. Except badly um, written, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, who had that? I mean, was that in Lucy's Burl. vaults or is Burl had it? Okay. Burl had, we didn't have that. We did okay. not have that. I had heard rumors about it. I had the TV guide where they appeared. Uh, Tom Watson and I assumed it was a tape because they had videotape by that point. Mm. 
we figured it was just a variety tape show that Burl did on at NBC. And it turned out that he had shot it at Desilu, three camera, no audience. It was um, it was canned, canned mm-hmm. laughter. Again, you can tell. Um, and <laughs> uh, it was a payback for him doing their show. Right. And it was shot at Desilu. And what happened was Lucy died. And my friend Gary Cascal, who was Burl's archivist, who's been on the show a few times, Burl called uh, Gary up and said, you know, everybody's capital. It was all about money with Burl. And Gary will be the first <laughs> one to tell you this. Everybody's capitalizing on Lucy. You know, Lucy and I did several shows. See what's in the vault. And yeah, yeah. Gary found this hour show that Burl had done with Lucy and Desi. And uh, the first time that aired was on Channel 11 in Los Angeles. And Burl did the wraparounds to it. And that was his way of making money off of her death, I guess. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, then, the first I the, saw it was on DVD and I said, what's this? And I, I didn't I thought it was some garbage thing, you know, that I mean, it's not that funny, admittedly. But I mean, no. I thought it was like some, you know, public domain it, crap it or was, something. It you know, was something with Lucy and Desi that nobody yeah. had seen. So yeah. it was gold. Yeah, it and was gold. On that level, it's not bad. You know, it's like that, you know, but anyway, is but, there anything the else? This is, this is the problem that Lucy had when Lucy's writers were not writing Lucy's stuff. When she went on the Danny Thomas show, it was right. Danny Thomas's writers. They made her out of some kind of kook. Yes, she was crazy <laughs> in her shows, but there was there was some normalcy to it. OK, right. girl writers. No, nobody knew how to write for them. It's very flat and unfunny. <clears throat> I don't know what it is. But Bob and Madeline and, and, oh. and, and Schiller and Weisskopf were the only ones that could write the Lucy character well. She had other writers. She had Milt Josephberg. She had Bob O'Brien. Um, she had uh, Fred Fox and Seaman Jacobs, all these people that wrote Here's Lucy's. Uh, I find those show, I find her character in a lot of those pushing and annoying. She's yeah. not the scatterbrain, you know, yeah. when her voice dropped six, uh, 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 six, uh, al- 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 what's the word again? Octaves. octaves. Thank you. When her, that would have been funny if I had gotten the word octaves out. When her voice dropped six octaves and she's yelling at Gail Gordon, it wasn't funny anymore. That was a problem with our show. Yeah. She was yelling at everybody and everybody was screaming their lines because she thought she was back in 1951 when the equipment wasn't so good. <laughs> you don't zoom in, you dolly a camera in. It was, she had forgotten everything that had happened on the Lucy show and here's Lucy when we did that show and it was right back to 1951. Mm. I, it was it was great watching her work, yeah. but you don't question anything she yeah. had to do. That's no. that's one of the things in my Lucy collection I don't have yet. I still hesitate to buy it, but then you did get a cameo on it, I guess. <laughs> I had a part. She gave yes. me a part on it. Yeah, yeah. That's in the documentary. I I love that woman. Yeah. She could be so. very. She could be tough. She was a tough old yeah. broad, but she had a heart of gold. And if she loved you, you were in like Flint, and mm. she was a sensitive, caring person, and. Mm. You know, uh, a lot of people didn't understand that about her is that, you know, working was the number one. You did what she said, regardless of whether you thought she was right or wrong. It's her show. It's her ass on the line. Whether you think it's right or wrong, you do what she says. That's why Gail Gordon lasted so long. Yeah. He deferred and all the directors deferred to her. I mean, she's seen people always portray her as being really tough and stuff like that. But the one thing I saw and looking at all the different extras over the years um, that seemed like the real Lucy, since I never met Lucy um, was the New York world's fair in 64, 65, where she was a special guest. I don't that 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 seemed like real Lucy. Like she was not playing the comedian. She was not putting on air. She was just being herself. Is that like accurate? 
in you your know, opinion? I've always said to people that have asked me, I, I knew two Lucy's. I knew the Lucy that was at home with no makeup, who, <laughs> who sounded like Lucy, but didn't look like Lucy because the hair wasn't so flaming and the eyelashes weren't on and all that. And then there was the Lucy who was the TV Lucy. And when that Lucy said, hi, Stu, how are you, darling? It's like, oh my God, that's Lucille Ball talking to me. <laughs> but the Lucy at home, who was the same person, yeah. Hi, Stu. How are you, darling? She could have been a friend of my grandmother's. You yeah, know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Two different people. <laughs> so the thing is, I think what what softened me on her was the fact that I knew her as a teacher first from that mm -hmm. class. Mm -hmm. I knew her as a boss, but not in a here's Lucy type thing. It was like I'm working for them, but I'm working out of my house and delivering stuff. And mm -hmm. oh, come talk to me, dear. How are you? Do you have to leave right away? That type. So by the time we went to series and I was working with her in a, in an atmosphere that everybody knew her from. She was in charge. She was never nasty. It's just that that voice, yeah. that Broderick Crawford-esque <laughs> voice could be intimidating to yeah. some people, but yeah. because I knew her and, and she would say like, I mean, and this is to the extent of her losing her temper on the set. No, no, no. You can't put that camera there. That won't work there. You got to move it over, move it over. That's the type of thing she would do. <coughs> it was never, God damn it, move that camera. It was never anything like that. Yeah, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was no, 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 no. That's got to come here. That's got to come here. And whether you as a crew person knew she was right or wrong, whether she was right or wrong, you did what she, she asked you to do. No, yeah. Nobody argued with her. People were afraid to, but, but she never, <laughs> no, 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 because of that voice, it's very intimidating. But, you know, she, she was never, she never raised her voice and got mad when mm -hmm. she, she was unhappy a lot and she would show frustration, mm -hmm. but she never, I mean, I think in the 10 years I worked for her, she snapped at me twice mm. and I got really upset and won. I thought, oh my God, she's really mad at me. 10 seconds later, it's like forgotten. You, know? you remember what it was about? <laughs> I, I can tell you one time I thought she was going to get mad at me and I act, I, I couldn't believe I did what I did because I am a boob. And I got, <laughs> we're, we're in the, we're in the pool house. They had a, a dressing room pool house for people before using their swimming pool. And she stored a lot of stuff in there. And this was in the early eighties and she was getting ready to throw some of the kids all clothes out, uh, clothes out and toys and stuff. And they were just in boxes, but she wanted to go through them to make sure there was nothing in there that sentimentally she wanted to keep. She's a very sentimental person, very right. sensitive. She'd cry at the drop of a hat. And I don't mean, bah! I mean, actually, yeah. you know, wow. no, yeah, she wouldn't yeah. do that. She wouldn't yeah. do that. So uh, <laughs> we found uh, Desi Jr.'s old Tinker Toy piano. Okay. Mm. Wow. So she said, she said to me, why don't you take that? You may have kids of your own someday. And it's like, well, I'm not going to have them play this uh, antique piano. But I put the thing down and next to it was an old straw hat, hmm. you know, could have been Desi's. I don't know. And I don't know what possessed me to do this because I think in my God, did I cross the line here? <laughs> I put the straw hat on and I started playing the piano and I went, they call me Cuban Pete. <laughs> And then I realized who I was doing this for, <laughs> and I froze. <laughs> he's right behind me, and there was about a five-second silence, and she went, ah! 
She thought it was the fight. She goes, you look just like this. Yeah. I'm thinking, thank you, God. She <laughs> thought it was the funniest thing she'd ever thought. But oh. for five seconds there, I thought, oh, my God, I'm yeah. a dead man. But she thought, <laughs> um, there were there were two times she got mad at me. And again, 10 seconds later, it was forgotten. Yeah. One of them is the margarita story, which we don't have time to go into. It's a real long story. She was really upset with one of the rehearsals at Life with Lucy. And I had to drive her back to her. I'll just tell it. I'll tell it as fast as I can. Because, okay. um, again, my stupidity. And I asked for this, not knowing. The rehearsal went really bad. Um, you know, those scripts, the scripts were not that great. And the writer's attitude was, well, Lucy will make it great. She'll take something and, you know, make it great, which was the truth. You could give her something and she'd make it good. But but this was a particular day where she even said, and she had no ego. That was the thing that people don't understand. She we were she was in the middle of something, and and again, she didn't raise her voice. She she said something to the effect of, My God, even I can't fix this thing, or something like that. But she didn't <laughs> she, she didn't say it in a nasty way. She said it in a way where we laughed because but she was serious about it. So Tom, who was her personal assistant, I was Gary's assistant, he, Tom was her assistant. Um, for whatever reason, Gary sent him out on an errand instead of me. So I had to take her back to her dressing room, which is in a golf cart across the lot at Goldwyn, and she was not in a good mood because she was really upset about the show and she wasn't upset about the show for the writing she was upset that the audience wasn't going to laugh that was her thing she didn't care she said she'd do anything they wrote if they she trusted them but she just had this feeling that the audience wasn't going to laugh and little did she know like carol o'connor she could fart and get a standing ovation <laughs> that was a problem with the show it ran so long because she'd get these huge laughs that and and gary would in editing would not cut her laughs he'd cut everybody else's laughs to get to time but not hers and that's why she got a walk on applause every week it was just a, a big mess so anyway she liked to have a drink after mm -hmm. rehearsals and especially today this particular day because things were not going well I, you know and tom knew bartending somewhat i knew zero you know <laughs> diet coke is all i know so so we get to the dressing room and she says fix me a margarita well i didn't know what that was i had i believe it or not at 29 or 30 whatever i was i had never drank them because I, I don't drink uh, I know what it is now. I learned the hard way. Ah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I didn't know. And then they, the studio gave her this fancy 1986, you know, 49 speed blender. Okay. Yeah. Which she hated. She hated it. Mm. Um, she had Frank, the guy who was in charge of her house, bring the blender from their house to the dressing room. And just to show you old school, this thing had one of those old style rope plugs on it. This blender of hers was so old. I was afraid <laughs> plugging it in, the whole room would explode. Wow. Oh God! And 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 it had it. You, you know how they have the plastic blades? This yeah, thing yeah. had had like car engine blades on it. It these thick, you know, things where if you stuck your finger in, it would just gobble your whole yeah, yeah. arm up. <laughs> this thing was a monster, but that's what she wanted to mix her drinks with. Mm. So. Um, now I, I've totally forgotten margaritas. What's the liquor in it? It's not vodka. What is in the margarita? Uh, tequila. Tequila. Thank you. See, I'm out of it. <laughs> so all she I had know, there was I know my drinks. Yeah, yeah. All Pretty she much. had there was tequila. She just had tequila there. Mm -hmm. I figured, okay. 
So um, she's, th th she had beautiful dressing room. It was like a one bedroom suite. It was a little living room and a kitchenette and a bedroom and a bathroom and with a shower in case she wanted to, you know, it was like a Raymond Burr, Perry Mason type thing, but it's beautiful. <laughs> anyway, she, she was in the living room area. And uh, I'm thinking, I, 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 you know, what I should have said was, I, I don't know how to make a margarita. I should have said that, but she was so upset. <laughs> I felt like if I had said that to her, she would have screamed at me, mm. knowing that she doesn't really scream unless she's really upset. And, and I made it worse. So here's, here's the deal. So now I'm like, I don't know what to do. There's no phone in the kitchen. I can't call anybody, you know, what's in a margarita. So at some point she goes, where's my drink? You know, she's yelling <coughs> every time I do her, I call. <coughs> so I'm working on it. And about two minutes later, she just got impatient and came in the kitchen. And she goes, you haven't done anything here. And I said, well, I've got the tequila here. And I smiled and she goes, well, start making the drink. So, um, wow. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, picture this. All right. <laughs> I didn't know you needed the blender or any of this stuff. So she says, move the blender over here. Start making the drink. She wasn't, she, she, she wasn't mad. She was just like, you know, let's get on with this. So I kind of figured, okay, maybe I can get away with her telling me how to make this. This, this might work out. Okay. So, um, she says, okay, now get the ice. And I knew where the ice was in the freezer. So I went and I got the, I got the bucket of ice out. And, and, and uh, she says, uh, all right, now get the shot, shot glass. And I went and got the shot glass. And I'm standing in front of this bowl of ice with the shot glass. And she goes, all right, now put the ice in. Meaning, put the ice in the blender. Well, me, I, mm. took, an, I, I took an ice cube and put it in the shot glass. Right? Ooh. And that's... That, <laughs> No, he goes, no. <laughs> and, and this is the first time I ever saw because she was really upset. And then she goes, you don't know how to make a margarita, do you? You don't know how to make a margarita. Now watch me. She takes the ice. She dumps it in the blender. She takes the tequila. She does, and she turns it on. <laughs> she takes the glass. She pours a margarita. She goes, that's how you make a margarita. And she stormed out of the kitchen. I, uh, I am terrified. <laughs> I am. I mean, it's like, this is it. I've pissed off Lucille Ball, one of my idols. My life is over. I may as well just go out on Santa Monica Boulevard with the other derelicts. It's over. 15 seconds later, she says, well, why don't you come in here and sit with me, dear? <laughs> All over. She had her drink. She got what she wanted. She was relaxed. And I went out and it was like it never happened. <laughs> Sounds like an episode. <laughs> I was never so terrified in my life. Wow. The other time she snapped at me, it was just a minor thing. I was, I was uh, putting tapes away for Gary and his den, and I found something that I wanted to see, and I popped it on while I was watching it. And as I was popping it on, she walked in and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, there's this tape here. I, this looks interesting. I, I want to see this. She goes, why are you doing that now? I thought you were doing this or something. She didn't get half as mad as she did with the margarita, but she was, <laughs> she was clearly annoyed. Yeah. Um, and then, but then she walked out of the room and, and then I turned it off because I figured, oh shit, she's going to be pissed at this. I don't know if that was before or after, <clears throat> but then I put it back in the box and she came back in and she said, well, why aren't you watching what you wanted to watch? 
And I didn't want to say, well, because you indicated to me that it was not cool. I just said, I'll, I'll watch it later. I'm here to work. I said something like that, which satisfied her. And, and that was the end. Of, but in the 10 years I worked for her, that was it. She never raised her voice, never got <laughs> mad. Clearly the margarita thing, she was already predestined <laughs> to explode. And I just kind of helped it That's along. But I was so afraid to tell her I didn't know. I, I was stuck. There was no, no way out of that. That was worth telling. <laughs> I don't know. Killed about ten minutes. I don't know how long you expect this. To, it's like my show. You're going to break my record. Uh, it's four hours. <laughs> no. Oh man. I did that with Wes when I had him on the show. You did um, four hours with Wes? No, I did not. I said I just started the show off. Well, tonight's four hour episode, and he about died. He's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's a putz. <laughs> anyway, um. Before I wrap up, I just wanted to know, um, you know, you met people like Wesley Hyatt, Steve Beverly, you know, uh, your announcers, um, and who else am I missing? Uh, Dick DiBartolo. How did you meet all these people? Is it just doing all the different things you've done or is it just in travels or, you well, know, no, the, the people that you mentioned all came as a result of the show. Steve Beverly, I knew before the show okay. Steve was a video customer. And so was Wesley. They both bought tapes from me because they're both TV historians. Okay. So there was some of that, but Dick D Bartolo, I think I met through Mark Evanier. Okay. Um, and then how'd you meet Mark? Um, it's a funny story with Mark. Mark bought tapes from me in the eighties and I okay. didn't know who he was. Okay. And then in the nineties, he called my office and said, you transfer eight millimeter home movies, don't you? I said, yeah. He goes, well, I, I have a whole bunch of my families <clears throat> that I've never had transferred. And I figured, you know, since I'm buying classic TV from you, I may as well have you do them. And that's how we became friends. And, and Mark, that's that's one of the things that I'm, I'm most pleased with uh, in my career. Mark Evanier is one of the most solid, nicest you know, loyal people. He is, he is a good friend. He's a good guy. He's smart. He's, he's funny. Mm -hmm. um, he's, that's one of my proudest friendships is, is mm -hmm. with him. And when I started my show in 2006, he was my first guest. Right. Um, he did my first show and, you know, he jokes, you know, that he's on my show more than I am, but um, <laughs> uh, he's a great guest. He, he's mm -hmm. so multi-talented and so multifaceted you know, like me, I mean, not like more than me, he's done everything, you know, mm -hmm. comic books and, and television shows, variety shows, sitcoms, you know, he, he hosts panels at Comic-Con. You can't run out of things to say uh, with him when you have him on your show, because every time it's a different subject and he's brilliant at everyone. Right. He's funny. Uh, you know, he keeps things moving. He, he, he is the best talk show guest that you could have. And he introduced me to a lot of the cartoon people that I've had on my show. Is that how you met Jerry then? Jerry That's Beck. how I met uh, Jerry actually emailed me. I met Jerry and then Jerry introduced me to Keith Scott. Uh, Mark knew Jerry, but I had been on the, on the air about six months and Jerry wanted to do my show. So Jerry emailed me, but <laughs> through Mark, I met Jerry Eisenberg and Willie Ito oh, yeah. and Tony Benedict and right. June Foray. Yep. And, and, you know, I mean, as far as the, the cartoon people and voice people that all came through Mark. And of course, you know, once these people do my show and know that I'm knowledgeable about this stuff and passionate and let them talk for as long as they want, they all want to come back. The, um, a lot of the people that did do, did my show. I met at the autograph shows at the mm -hmm. uh, airport Marriott in Burbank and mm -hmm. down by LAX. 
And uh, a lot of them came from my warm-up career and booking the audience. That's, that's how uh, Glenn Scarpelli was on the show because I was friends with him. Uh, Joel Higgins, the co-star Silver Spoons. I thought that all came from my years. At- well, I, fi- I figured, you know, the acting uh, celebrities was from, you know, your warm-up years and everything else and then word them out that way, you know. But the Leave it to yeah. Beaver people and, and Stan-, Stan Livingston I met in an autograph show in 1992 and he's one of my closest friends. I've known him 30, 30 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I met Barry through him and I met Tina Cole and Don Grady and Tim Considine through him uh, and everybody but Tim was on my show and now sadly we've lost yeah. Tim uh, it was bad enough when we lost Don he wasn't even 70 years old um, and that's what's really hard about doing this type of show know, every week I'm away. doing an obituary <laughs> now for somebody who was on my show we just lost Dwayne Hickman Sally Kellerman Dwayne I've known for a long time too the, the, the basis for the show though is I met most of these people either from the work I did in the 80s and 90s doing audience warm-ups or uh, at the autograph shows. And then, of course, word of mouth, you know, people, Steve Franken, for example, wanted to do my show based on what Dwayne told him. Sheila James did my Mm -hmm. show because she was friends with Dwayne. You know, they say, hey, you ought to do Stu's show. You get two hours to talk about (laughs) yourself, lately four, but (laughs) you get two and, you know, and he's knowledgeable. He shows clips of your career and all that. So it's really not that hard. I'm booked for the whole season. I'm already starting to think about next year, but we're going to make a little bit of a change next year because, damn it, I'm old. And I don't want to work as hard. So I'm not going away. Unfortunately for you oh. sinners out there, I'm, I'm not going away. But I am, I am going to change things, change up things a, a little bit. You got this guy too. This guy on the other end of this Zoom thing. He'll he'll keep you entertained. I'm All right. Well, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I just wanted to find out a little bit about yourself. You know, a little. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah way too much. What is this? Of, an hour about, and forty-five minutes. Is that's that about nor- that's about normal on on my show. It's not. It's at least an hour. Sometimes it goes two. Um, to wrap up the show, we usually just do. You know, it's like, how can people get in contact with you? What are you doing next? Are you the making appearances? Is, Obviously, how, you're doing stew after show. After this hour and 45 minutes, it's not how, it's why would yeah. they want to get in contact with <laughs> There you. we go. <laughs> well, stewshow.com is the best place to go. If you support the show each month, like a hundred and some odd people are doing right now, you get a classic TV channel for free. Mark, you support the show. You tell them. Why, why, why should I show myself? You do it. You be <laughs> Doc Severinsen. I'm Joan Rivers. Go. <laughs> but this is your opportunity to self-promote. <laughs> I've been talking for, for an hour. And Even for me, that's a long time. See, I do my shows easily. I just, <laughs> I just sit back and let the guests talk, unlike you. <laughs> Anyway, and you think um, it's gonna be a part two with CJ, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let him do the talking. Anyway, you realize um, when we started this, it was light. I'm yeah. sitting. In the, I'm sitting in the twilight zone right well, now. I'm in the same time zone. That's the reason why I well, said. Well, yeah, up. but but yeah, but I got windows everywhere, and yeah. to get the lighting right for yeah. this thing. I had to. I had to spotlight me in two places. I feel like I'm on a witness stand here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're wrapping it up. Um, so I couldn't um, even wear my glasses because the light would come in. So Thank I will, you. I will do, a pl- I will do a plug for you. Okay. So this man because does- I'm coughing. Yeah. So this man, Stu Show Stack, does Stu Show. You've been doing, you've been doing it since 2006. It started like Fun Ideas podcast is just an all audio podcast. Then you went to video, low res. Now you're on high definition from Pine Mountain, um, and. Uh, 
as far as I know, you're still going to go every other week unless you're doing something different. You keep alluding it's to that. It's still going to be other, every other week, but okay. I am doing something different. And I don't really want to talk about it till the end of the year because it's right okay. now it's still in the idea. Okay, but it's still going to be the same type of schedule, like roughly September to May. Yeah. Is that what you're September to August? August. To, oh, October wow. <laughs> to August. October okay. to August. Yeah. Okay. <coughs> and uh, I and assume I will, you at some point I will quit coughing. Too. Yes. <laughs> when we're off the air. <laughs> and, uh, I assume you'll have the same regular guests that you tend to have besides the new ones, you know, like you'll have yeah, Jerry it's a Beck 50 50 too. split. I have, you know, Stephen West and Jerry, Be Jer Jerry's going to cut back on appearances next year. Oh, okay. um, uh, but Stephen West will still do three shows a year. Bob Lesjack is a regular. Okay. Uh, every time you publish a book, unfortunately, I have to have you on the show. <laughs> four times my record <laughs> yeah. oh that's a lot that's a lot you know um yeah but uh, uh uh i have a about half the shows are regulars that do the show once a year and a half or new yeah. uh i haven't had any problems since moving out of la people love coming up here and seeing the new place and yeah well if you have me i will come down there one of these days you know it's like <laughs> well, i'll have you all right. <laughs> You'll be waiting with a pitchfork. <laughs> Have you for dinner. Ah! <laughs> anyway, so if, if there's nothing else, uh, you gave a quick There's nothing plug. else you um, can end this Zoom. Oh, I know. <laughs> Say hi to Janine. I will. Uh, hi, hi. She's probably asleep. Yeah. <laughs> Tell her I love her jokes. She fell asleep five minutes into this. Tell her what? Tell her I love her jokes. <laughs> Only people that watch us on New Year's Eve know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, CJ and Mal are going to be on my show to promote the documentary. And CJ said, you know, a lot of people are going to be watching this. Does Janine have to tell her jokes on that? <laughs> so you know, I'm dealing with that now. I, you asked at the front of the show when you don't know when this is going to air, but I'll just say um, I'm a little bit ahead. So this is going to be at the end of April. So um, right I before think... the movie comes right. out, I think I can safely say that without getting bleeped. I think yep. by the time this airs, the announcements will be in the trades and everything. Yeah. So, so pay attention to Stu's show for further details about the documentary called Stu's show. And uh, then hopefully, you know, we can hear more about it the next time you're on the show and we can talk about anything other than Lucy. We can talk about Leave it to Beaver or W. Gillis or Perry Mason or any number of TV shows. Why? I don't know. I guess for TV fans. <laughs> no, the next time we'll see Jay will be here and you can talk to him about making the documentary. You can, see him on my show on may 18th okay. and that's because it's been a pretty big roller coaster ride for him too with covid and everything getting this out and okay. getting stuff like that so yeah never never at a loss for words so <laughs> thank you all for putting up with this for the last almost two hours now. yes <laughs> hey i had to put it up with a live so go figure anyway <laughs> fight me again all right, we're wrapping up another Fun Ideas podcast with my special guest, Mr. Stu Showstack, the host of Stu's show. Check him out on his show, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Stu Showstack, for being my special guest. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number 161 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas Podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. 
This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you, and good night.